So I'm Scott Parker, and uh, this is North Rogers Park, uh, location of Park Community Church. And uh, we've been uh, going through the book of John as a congregation, uh, just plowing through the book of John. And uh, as we've been going through the book of John, we've been looking at some of the, the I am statements of Jesus. And uh, Jesus has said things like, I am the bread of life. And so we spent uh, a few weeks chewing on that and uh, following the, the breadcrumbs where they would take us. Uh, if anyone comes up with any more puns about the bread of life, put them, put them in the chat. I'm collecting them. Um, and then we heard about where Jesus said, I am the light. And right after he talked about him being the light, there's a story of him healing a blind man. And this is the pattern that we see in the book of John, that Jesus will preach a sermon, and with that sermon will come a sign or a wonder that backs it up. And then we, we read about um, Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. And in the midst of that, he said, I am the gate. And then last week, Jonathan Morgan preached on Jesus where he said, I am the resurrection. And so today I'm going to go back to the gate uh, because that's, that's just where God's had me. And I, I just want to review, we've, we've done two messages on Jesus as the gate. And in the first message, it was the first message where we really... Uh, felt led by God to, to start this prayer thing in the middle of our service. I got here in the morning and we were about to, I was about to preach and God said, you are not ready to preach yet. And so we, we just took some time and we just prayed and we just waited on the Lord. And one of our, our brothers we opened up the mic. He said, the tent moved towards me, Scott, so I knew I was supposed to come up. And he came up and he shared a message. It was so similar to the message I was going to share. And then right at noon, God said, all right, you can preach now. And I came to the mic. And as soon as I came to the mic, 40 people came around the corner. God had said, wait until the people are here before you preach. And that message that day was that Jesus is a gate in the same way that, that there was a door that had blood over it back when the Israelites were in Egypt. There came a moment in the confrontation with Pharaoh where you had to put your sign in the front line. Not that you were voting for Trump or for Biden. But you put blood on your doorposts, and that said, we're with the God of Moses. And anybody that didn't have that blood on their doorpost was saying, we don't believe in the word of God that God spoke through Moses, that tonight an angel is going to come and take the firstborn of every child in Egypt that doesn't have that blood over the doorpost. There comes a time in our life where there's a choice to be made. 
There comes a time where you've listened to the the voice of God and the voice of Pharaoh, the voice of this candidate and the voice of that candidate, and you've got to cast your vote. Which one are you going to put your eternities in? Which one are you going to trust for your salvation? And God took 10 plagues to get Egypt ready to put their trust in him. And then one day he said, now we're going to see if you put blood on your door. And anybody that put blood on the door that night had, an, had the angel of death pass over their family, had the angel of death pass over their house. And all those that didn't take a stand with God woke up to the firstborn son or daughter dead. And we talked about that Egypt was a system. It wasn't just a nation, and it wasn't just a leader. It was a system of oppression. It was a way of doing government that is the way that the enemy always does government, where he takes a, he takes a one group of people and makes them economically tied to the oppression of another group of people. And anytime you see a system where the way people make a living is tied to the oppression of another group of people, that is not a God system, that is not a God economy, that is a demonic economy. And we've seen that in the history of the world. Chattel slavery, the European empire that said, I was white and my brothers and sisters are black. You know, that, that wasn't God's idea. Do you know that? God did not make people white and black. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says, and these were white people and these were black people. That was an empire idea. That was an Egypt idea that was created so that one group of people could take advantage of another group of people and think it was okay. They didn't say black lives don't matter. They said they don't matter as much. And after a while, it just means the exact same thing. And there comes a time where God brings judgment on demonic systems and says they have to cease. And he doesn't just go after Pharaoh, he goes after the firstborn. Because what God is saying is not only does this have to be destroyed, it has to not continue. There can't be a generation after this that takes up this system again and continues it. And that is true in our city. That's true in our city about the race problem. And that's true in our city about the drug problem. The, the drug trade, the trap, has got to end because it's killing us. We can't continue to have a minority group of people making money off the, the slavery to a substance, uh, putting a hook in people's mouth, dragging them in, and shaking money out of them. 
It has to end. And God loves us enough that eventually he will bring judgment on that and he will end it. And anytime you see babies dying, that is God saying that this system has to end. And anytime God is bringing judgment on a system, anytime God is bringing judgment on a way of doing governance and economy, God provides a way out. He did it with Noah. He built an ark. And he was working on it for 75 years. Give or take a few. We, we're not sure, but it was at least that much. For 75 years, people could have walked up to Moses and said, why are you building that? And had the opportunity to repent. And it was the same with Egypt. They had 10 plagues to figure out Pharaoh is not the right person for us to stay with right now. They had 10 plagues to figure out we need to get out of Egypt. But then there came a day where they had to make a decision. And it's the same with us. Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the way out of sin and death and oppression. I am the way out and I am the way in. I am the way in to a new sheep pen. I am the way in to the kingdom. I am the way in to a new family. And you will be a new nation, a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. So that was our first message on Jesus as the gate, as Jesus as the door. Our second message, I told the story of uh, the three little pigs. I told it a little different than usual. And at the end of the story, the older pig was so freaked out by the big bad wolf and scared that his brothers, who weren't too bright because they built a house out of straw and a house out of wood, he decided to plant a garden in front of his house and then he built a brick wall all around his house with no entrance and no exit. And no one ever saw the three little pigs again. They just saw this big wall of bricks. And we talk about Jesus as the gate because if you build a wall to protect yourself and you have no gate, you can't get out if something bad gets in. If you build, if you build too much of a wall with no entrance and no exit, that wall, that protection you've created can become a trap. And so we need a gate in our lives. We need a gatekeeper. We need somebody that we can trust who's going to let us know what is good to come in. Let us know what is, what, what's bad that needs to be pushed out. Jesus said, I am the gate. And he basically says, anybody, anybody that's from me has to come through me to get to you if you make me your gate. 
And we got to be careful because some of us, we make money our gate. As long as it's going to make me money, you, you're welcome in, right? If you look good, I'll let you in, right? If you hate the people I hate, I'll let you in. If you're for the issue I'm for, I'll let you in. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I am the gate. Make me your gate. And so I've, I've been reflecting this week on the book of Genesis. And as I've been reflecting on it, it just fit with this gate idea. So I figured, I guess we're not done with the gate yet. So I'm gonna, we're going to be reading in Genesis 3 and 4 with an emphasis on the curses. But let me just tell the story to you. You can follow around along in your Bibles, Genesis 3 and 4. I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this. So if I mess up, give me a little grace. That's why you got it in front of you, all right? So basically the idea is God has made a, a, a man and a woman. Adam, he called Adam because Adam came from out the ground. Adama is the earth. And so in some ways, the earth and God made a man. And Adam, God made him in his image. He stuck him in a garden. And he said, Adam, I named you, but you're, you're, you're my image bearer. Your job is to image me to this planet. You represent me here. So I named you, but from now on, you're going to do the naming. And so he makes Adam, and he puts him in the garden, and he brings all the animals, fish and birds and crawling animals in front of Adam, and he has Adam name every single one of them. I imagine that takes a long time, all right? I would imagine that took a long time. And the Bible says that after Adam watched all these animals, it says, and there was no suitable helper for him. I think after a while, Adam started to notice there's a male giraffe and a female giraffe. There's a male whale and a female whale. There's a male eagle and a female eagle. There's a me and nobody else. What's going on here? All right? And the Bible says that God said it was not good for man to be alone. Well, so far, we've never heard the word not good in God's creation. So far, it's been God made the sun, the stars, the moon, so that we know what time it is. It was good. Right? God separated the waters, and it was good. God separated light and dark, and it was good. But all of a sudden, it's not good that man should be alone. And so we have two categories so far in creation, good and not good. And not good stands for not finished. And you see how God put man right in the process of not finished? He wanted Adam to even feel that he wasn't finished. He stuck him in front of all those animals for all those, how many, was it years? So that Adam could feel that he was not 
finished. That's before there was sin in the world. Do you know God right now might be putting something in you that makes you feel not finished? So good. A burden for somebody? A dream to see it happen? And it's, it's, it kind of aches, doesn't it? I mean, when I was about 26, I had to be married. I don't know where it came from. I was kind of okay until then, but about 26, 27, I felt like if I don't get married, I am going to die. And I was like, God, I don't know, I understand. Why do, why do I need to be married so bad? Aren't you enough? And it was like God was saying to me, you're not finished. And honest to God, when I met Moon, when I met my wife, and we had that talk where I knew this was going to work out, unlike all the other times before, it was like I was healed. I have no other, it was like this thing in me got finished. And even, even think about it. How, did, how does God make a woman? He takes a piece out of Adam and makes a woman of him. And so <laughs> Eve becomes what Adam was missing. And they are completed. And now there's a third category. What's the third category? Very good. Right? So you got good. You got not good, I'm finished. And then when God finishes what you were aching for, what you were longing for, very good. What's up, Candy Man? Love you, brother. Very good. Pay attention to the not good in your heart because you're on your way to a very good. There, that's just free. That's not even the sermon today. But that's part of the story. All right? And so you got Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden, and they're completed. And the Bible says they were naked and unashamed. That means they were getting busy. That's what I think that means. And right after that, you have a new character, the serpent. And the Bible says he was crafty above all other animals. But it's interesting, in Hebrew, that word for crafty is the same exact word we just heard about Adam and Eve. They were naked. And so what the Bible is saying is that the serpent was naked above all other animals. And that word naked can mean naked, and it can mean crafty. Well, aren't those just the exact opposite? Isn't naked and crafty the opposite? Naked's like, you can see me. Crafty's like, I'm trying to deceive you. So how can the serpent be naked and crafty at the same time? Ah, that's, that's Genesis for you, because Genesis is brilliant. Genesis is one of the greatest read-between-the-lines literature probably in the history of mankind. Here's my theory. It's actually not my theory. It's a guy named Rabbi David Foreman's theory. And if you've been around, you hear me quote him all the time. His theory is this. What is the serpent? 
What is a serpent? It's an animal. It's a beast. And what rules a beast? My dog, as soon as my wife comes home, my dog goes crazy for her. When I'm eating something, my dog looks at me with like these cutest eyes possible, right? That's instinct. That's the instinct of a dog that has sat at the table of mankind for two to 4,000 years. It's been a long time since the dogs that we have were out chasing things as wolves out in the, out in the woods, all right? Most of the time, they've instinctively learned look real cute and the people you live with will throw you something. That's a dog's instinct. A shark's instinct is different. A shark's instinct is blood in the water, I eat it, right? It just goes. And for a beast, there is no higher authority than its instinct for a beast. And this is very interesting in Genesis. What Genesis is telling us here is that all of us, we have desire. The rabbis called it evil inclination. What they meant to say was like, God created us with a drive, with sexual drive, with creative drive, with, with drive to get things done. But he, he gave us a higher view of it so that we could rule it, right? Because when, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he put, a, he put two trees. Hey, bro. He put two trees in the garden. One was the tree of life. The other was the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. And he told Adam this one thing. He only gave him one command. One command. He had no other rules to obey or disobey. Can you imagine going through your life, there's only one rule you have to obey? Hallelujah. That is amazing, right? One rule. Don't eat that fruit. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. One rule. Kind of weird. Kind of weird. I would not build a room for my kids. Stick a button in it that said, do not push this or it'll blow you up. Kind of weird that God would do this, but he did it. And I think he did it so that he gave man the opportunity to make a choice. Because without choice, you can't really love somebody. My wife chose me. I chose her. Every day she continues to choose me. Every day I continue to choose her. We know we live in a world where we know she could choose somebody else. I could choose somebody else. We see people do it all the time. The choice proves the love. So Adam and Eve are in this garden. And the beast, the snake, comes to Eve and it's weird in Hebrew what it says is basically did God say you can't eat of any tree in the garden and that's it 
And it's almost, it's almost like what the beast is saying is, so what if God said it? That's not how I'm ruled. Why don't you pay attention to just your basic instincts? And in that way, he is being completely naked. It's just naked desire. You know, if you get around people that are only ruled by their naked desire, that's their highest desire. They're in some ways not lying to you when they're like, let's go do something wrong. That's how they roll. And for them, it's not wrong. The serpent didn't get the command, Adam did. And so Eve reaches out and she grabs the fruit. And it's interesting, it says she ate it. First she touched it, then she ate it, and then she gave it to her husband. And then Adam ate it too. And then God showed up. But before God showed up, as soon as Adam ate the fruit, it doesn't say as soon as Eve ate the fruit, it says as soon as Adam ate the fruit. You gotta kinda wonder. Adam was the one who was given the command. Eve was the one that had learned the command from Adam. The Bible says that Adam disobeyed and Eve was deceived. That means if, if you know the commands of God, if you know better, it's your job to do better. It's your job to say something. It was Adam's job to say something. Perhaps if he had stepped in while the serpent was talking and told Eve, look, that's an animal. Animals aren't like us. You don't need to listen to that. We still only have one command we have to obey. Adam was there to protect the world from disobedience. And it's interesting, they don't have kids until after the garden. It's almost like God was waiting for them to have legacy, to have children until they passed or failed this test. And then Eve eats it. You know, and give, we got to kind of give Adam a little bit of, of grace here. He's the only one that knew what it was like to be lonely. His wife just jumped into death and said, are you going to join me? And he had to decide, was he going to be lonely again? And he became the first idol worship worshiper in, in the history of mankind. He chose the creative even the, 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 the gift that was very good over the creator. And he immediately knew he was naked. And so God shows up. He cries out, where are you? That's a cry of a heartbroken father who's just lost his children. Not like he didn't know where they were, but like, lost like they, they have died. 
James, I think you said this last week. God was the first parent who lost his children. And you can hear the father saying, where are you? Adam says, I, I, I'm naked. I, I was embarrassed because I was naked. God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat the fruit? Notice he comes at Adam. He doesn't come at Eve. You notice that? Who was the firstborn? Adam was the firstborn. Who had gotten the commandment? Adam had gotten the commandment. Who was supposed to know better? Adam was supposed to know better. God comes looking for Adam. Adam says, the woman you made me, she gave me this fruit to eat. The woman says, the serpent deceived me. The serpent says, nothing. Why does the serpent say nothing? I think because this is how he wanted it to go. He's that kid that just got everybody in trouble because he was already going to detention anyways, right? And the serpent's there. And just remember, this is a beast. The serpent is a beast. If you went to a moth and said, why do you fly into that flame? Don't you know when you fly into that flame, it's going to destroy you? The moth would have no understanding what you're talking about. The moth only knows. I see light, I fly to it. There's something about the serpent that only knows I see Something God made, I need to destroy it. And he doesn't care about the consequence. That's who we're up against. He does not care about the consequence. Well, it doesn't make sense. Evil doesn't make sense. Why would somebody do that to their children? Why would somebody do that? Because wickedness doesn't make sense. Wickedness is just wicked because it is. It's a beast. And it is here to kill and destroy. And be careful when you're talking to a beast. Because it does not care about you. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, check this out. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's a serpent. Why are we scared of snakes? Why are we scared of snakes? Elephants are bigger than snakes. But humanity is terrified of snakes. Lions are bigger than snakes. There's all kinds of things that can hurt you. Dogs can hurt you. Right? But there's something about a snake that has captured our imagination. What is it about a snake that makes it cursed above all lives? I think it's because if a snake bites you, you can chop its head off and you still die. Because it's not its bite that gets you, it's its venom that gets you. And what has just happened in the story? A tempter had come 
tempter had come and he reached into Eve's naked desire for wisdom, for a desire to be like God, and got her to reach out and disobey God. And what happened because of it? Did they drop dead right then and there? No. But corruption entered their bodies immediately, like poison. It came into their bodies and would slowly kill them. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat what? Dust. What happens when we die in scripture? You go down to the dust. The serpent is the cycle. The serpent is the cycle of death that each one of us have entered into that first time we rebelled against God and did what we knew was wrong, and we did it anyways. And I believe from that moment, corruption entered our bodies, and we were brought down. We were, we were going to be brought down to the dust. That is the cycle of death. Disobedience to God brings the corruption. Corruption brings us to death. And so the serpent is more than just the serpent. The serpent is actually the whole cycle. This is the only curse that comes with a promise. It's a really interesting curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. God says to that serpent, from now on, you will be at enmity with the woman. And her offspring will be at war with yours. And one day, a seed is going to come. And the, the word for seed here is singular. One day, one of her children will come. And he will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. If a serpent strikes your heel, what happens to you? Even if you crush its head. You're going to die. So it's almost saying one day a seed will come and he will, he will crush the head of the serpent and he will die in the doing. So now we go to Genesis 4. And now we really get into the meat of today's message. Has anyone seen the movie, uh, uh, oh my goodness, the I See Dead People movie? What's that called? Six cents. Six cents. Ah, not going to give away the ending. That would be mean. <laughs> There's a scene in the six cents. This kid can see, he can see dead people. That's why, that's the phrase. I see dead people, right? And there's this incredible scene, the most creepy scene for me in the movie. Is he goes upstairs and he sees a little girl. And she points him to a videotape. And he brings the videotape downstairs and he puts it, they're at the wake of the funeral, and he puts it in the video machine. 
and it starts to play. The videotape that is in a like a, a one of those stuffed animal cameras, and this girl has been sick, and what you see is that the stepfather is poisoning her. And everybody's at the funeral and, and they're they're watching this and it exposes him as the murderer. And that's a, the kind of picture that God gave me today. And of course, the family thought this guy cared about her and then found out that he didn't and was trying to get rid of her. And so somebody that you thought was okay in your family suddenly becomes, when, when, when you see it for what it is, you become angry. That's my goal today. My goal today is that you become angry at that which is poisoning us, at that which is killing us in our community. I'm going to go quick here. So you got Cain and you got Abel. So they're kicked out of the garden. Adam renames woman Eve because she's the mother of all the living. She has a child, her and Adam uh, make love. She gets pregnant. She gives birth to a boy and she says, I'm going to call him Cain because I have acquired a man with God. Now, some commentators, as they look kind of through the whole story, what they, did, what they realized was that's a very interesting phrase. Now, that could mean God gave me a gift of a boy. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to call him a gift from God. But what a lot of commentators say, that's not exactly what she said. She didn't say a gift from God. She says, I acquired a man with God. And the with there could mean that the way Eve sees it is she used God as a tool to get a man, to get a boy, to get what, what she wanted. And you see, when, when, when God came to Eve and he gave out her curse to her, he said, from now on, your desire will be for your husband. But that word for desire is a desire to master your husband. From now on in the world, when someone's in power, there'll be someone who doesn't have their power who will desire to master their power and manipulate them to do what they want them to do. And that's what's going to happen from now on. The woman is going to desire to master the husband. But the husband will rise up in his strength and lord over you. And so there's going to be strife from now on, power struggles from now on in the world. And everybody who's ever had a job said, amen. Right? Everybody who's ever had kids said, amen, right? Power struggles. Power struggles. 
you got the power, I don't, so I'm going to try to make you do what I want you to. Right? And, and so maybe Eve is saying here, I mastered God to get what I wanted. And she calls him Cain. She has another kid. Hey, Terry. She has another kid. She calls him Abel. And Abel just means vapor. Abel just means nothingness. And so it's almost like Eve is, is, I don't have power. I use God to get what I want. But I also understand before God, I am nothing. I used to be immortal, but now I'm worthy. And so you have these two brothers. And Abel becomes a shepherd. Which is weird because the curse on Adam was that from now on you're going to have to plant, you're going to have to till, and you're going to have to do all this farming, and it's going to be really hard. And here's Abel just, I think I'll raise some flocks. It's like he steps right out of the curse and walks right over here into a different way of doing things. Interesting about Abel. Cain, on the other hand, he's knee-deep in the curse. He's knee-deep in the farming. And he comes up with this idea of an offering. He finally gets through all the stones and the thorns and the thistles and all the curse of the land. And he produces a crop and he brings some of it to God as if to say thank you. And it's like Abel sees what his brother does and he goes and he takes the firstborn from his flock. And he sacrifices it, and he burns the fat on an altar so that the smoke rises up to heaven. And God says, Abel, what you did is respectable. And he comes to Cain, and he says, you need to do what your brother did. Your offering isn't working for me. What? But does God seem like a mean dad there or what? Right? If my sons both drew me a picture and my one son brought it to me, here, dad, here's the gift for you, and the other one brought it. And I looked at one picture and I said, that one I like, yours is garbage. Go make it more like your other brothers. Right? That would not be good parenting. All right? So what, what is God doing here? This is deep. All right? And, and after he tells Cain, if you do the way your brother did it, you will be accepted. You will be lifted up. You'll be in my good graces. He warns him. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is to master you. So what's going on here? Well, the book of Genesis is written as an argument against the idolatry of the nations. And what is idolatry? Idolatry is when I take what I can't control and I put a face on it. Baal. Presidential nominee. Polls. Whatever. We do it today. All right? We take what we can't control and we make it into an image of something that we think we can control, and we worship it, but we're not really worshiping it. 
we're actually trying to put it in our back pocket and make it do what we want it to do. And in the ancient world, if it didn't rain, you're dead. You're not going to eat. If you have famine too long, you have no army that you can feed. And so they were worshiping idols. And when they hear Cain brings an offering to God, it sounds very much like, oh, yeah, he's paying God off. You always got to do that with the gods. You always got to give them a little bit back because they're the ones that make sure your crops grow. But Abel's offering is different than that. Abram, Abel sacrifices a living a living thing that he's responsible for. But more important than that, he chooses the firstborn to do it. The firstborn. Where have we heard the firstborn before? Who was the firstborn in the story of Adam and Eve? Adam was. And what did Adam do? He brought death to the whole planet. You think your family has shame problems? Imagine the first family. Hey, Dad, tell that story again about how you disobeyed God and brought death to the whole planet. Right? Talk about having your kids having a little something over you for the rest of your life. Hey, Dad, I was out plowing today. Again, thanks for that. Right? Can you imagine the shame that this first family was feeling, the, the, the depth of regret? And I think Abel had been and actually thinking about this for a long time. I think he was thinking about this story because what happened when, when God finally doles out the curses and the punishments and kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, it says he sees them in their nakedness and he took skins and he covered them with the skins. And he probably killed an animal to do that. And I think Abel remembered that. And I think Abel was dealing with the fact my family messed up. My family brought sin into the world. And I feel shame about it. And I need to figure out how to get right with God. I need a covering. And how did God make a covering? He made a sacrifice. And so Abel's sacrifice brought to God, I think, is him saying, we messed up. We got kicked out of the garden. Your presence isn't with us anymore, and we want it back. If I take an animal and I sacrifice it like my parents had an animal sacrifice to cover them, will your presence come back and dwell with us? When I see it that way, it makes sense why God says, look at what your brother did. He's not trying to manipulate me. He's understanding what had happened. And it's interesting, God does not show back up in Genesis 4 until after Abel's sacrifice. 
Because once Abel makes the sacrifice, then God comes to Cain and corrects him. The younger brother remembers the firstborn, his dad, messed up and looks for a covering for his family. And God says, this is respectable to me. And God's presence comes. And with God's presence comes correction. And he comes to Cain and he says, Cain, make the same sacrifice. Acknowledge your family's issues. Acknowledge your problems. Acknowledge you need forgiveness. That you need a covering. And come here. And then you'll be lifted up. Then you will be accepted if you do this. But if you don't, if you don't get covered, the serpent is at the door. Sin is crouching. The beast that took on your parents is at the door, and it will master you. It will master you. And so what we see next is Cain doesn't say a thing. He's as quiet as the serpent was quiet. And he invites Abel out into a field and he kills him. He kills him dead. Now I've wondered, why would Cain kill Abel? Because he's jealous? But then I thought, what was the curse of the woman? Or what was the curse on the serpent? That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Who was the head of the serpent? The tempter. Who's crouching at the door? The tempter. The seed of the woman will crush your head. Her offspring will be at enmity with your offspring. Right? How does the serpent have offspring? How can the serpent have offspring? It's at the door. It wants to master you. Who kills Abel? Who's the only one that's the most threatened by Abel? The serpent. He doesn't know who the seed is. Who's the one that came up with a good idea? Abel did. If you're the serpent, who's your biggest threat? Abel. And so you see Cain go out into the field and kill his brother. 1 John 3, it says, do not be like Cain, who was of the devil, of the devil, and killed his brother because his deeds were wicked and his brothers were righteous. Cain was mastered by the serpent 
And because he was mastered by the serpent, he killed his brother. And so not only did Cain, did Abel make a sacrifice, he became the first martyr for righteousness. He was a sacrifice. Jesus says, I am the door. Jesus came and he died. He is our covering. When you come into Christ, you are covered by his blood. You are covered by his sacrifice. You are brought into fellowship with Jesus. God's presence can now come into your life. The presence of God is what protects you and keeps the serpent at the door. The presence of God is what keeps the serpent out of your home. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. Sexual abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, bad habits. Where do they primarily happen? Where does all that garbage usually start? In our homes. Sin is crouching at the door. So three questions for us today. Have you been covered? Have you made that sacrifice of Abel? Have you acknowledged you need a covering? Have you come into a relationship with Jesus? If not, the serpent could be running, running you over day and night. Number two, if you are a Christian, are you in God's presence? Are you taking advantage of the fact that you get to be in God's presence? Because God's presence brings the correction. What I love about this is Cain doesn't have to look for where the serpent is. God knows where the serpent is. God knows where the sin is. God knows where the sin is in your life. In his presence is his correction. No good. If you're in his presence, you don't need to figure out where that sin is. He'll figure it out and point it out to you and warn you about it. No good. But if you're not practicing his presence, if you're not in his word, if you're not in prayer, you won't know where the serpent's trying to get in. In your children's life, your wife's life, your church's life, your community's life, your life. Are you spending that time in the present? And third, sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we mess up. 
sometimes we let the servant in, but the serpent in. But see, that's the cool thing about Jesus. That's where Jesus is different. You know what's interesting? All of Jesus' disciples blow it. He tells them, pray so you won't enter into temptation. They don't pray. They enter into temptation. They all leave Jesus. Every single one of them ditches Jesus. He said, if you don't pray, you're going you're gonna to mess up. They didn't pray. They messed up. The only one who made it to the cross was John, and I think he only made it because a woman grabbed him. Because Mary was at the cross, and, and that's been true for a lot of us. We only made it because a woman grabbed us. Our mother, our grandmother, our wife brought us to the cross. The cool thing about Jesus is if you've messed up, you get a second chance. He gave his disciples a second chance. And that's why we're all standing here today. Because they were faithful with their second chance. 